Welcome to Life Study of the Bible, provided by Living Stream Ministry and featuring the ministry of Watchman Nee and Witness Lee. Witness Lee served the Lord faithfully for more than 70 years, culminating with his exhaustive commentary on the entire scriptures called Life Study of the Bible. Today, we're happy to bring you recorded excerpts from his ministry, along with some of our own considerations. At the end of the program, we'll give you the website where you can find more about the remarkable ministry of these two men. But for now, please enjoy today's program. Revelation, a book of prophecy, speaks of many events that have not yet taken place. But also it speaks of many events that have since taken place. Even the past 2,000 years of church history were clearly foretold in the opening chapters of the book of Revelation. Ron Kangas has joined us as we continue our look at the seven epistles to the churches in Asia in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And specifically today, we're looking at the church in Smyrna. Welcome back to the program, Ron. Chris, it's good to be here with you for this particular program. Well, we began this look in our previous program um, into Revelation 2 and 3. And they present us with seven letters sent to seven churches. And these seven letters provide us with both, as we saw, a literal and a prophetic significance. We touched this a bit in our last program, but let's come back to it today, Ron. From the prophetic side, just how far-reaching are these seven epistles as to what they signify? Let me first establish a foundational matter related to our reading and understanding of the book of Revelation. It is called a prophecy. And yes, to prophesy is to speak for God, but also in case after case in the scriptures, it's to speak for God regarding future events or developments. So it's a common understanding, maybe not by everyone, but it's a widespread understanding that Revelation is a book of prophecy regarding the future. Our understanding rest upon the shoulders of so many great teachers throughout the centuries that have preceded us. We are their heirs. We owe them so much. And the brethren, the brothers that were raised up in Ireland and England almost 200 years ago, experienced tremendous light shining on the Word of God. And one of these dear brothers wrote a book on what he called the prophetic history of the church. This is an unusual expression. It's speaking from the first century when the word was uttered, but it prophesies an eventual and gradual historical development of the church all the way until the end of the age. On the one hand, the seven churches were seven actual local churches in Asia Minor, and the words Christ spoke to the messenger of the churches was a word for those local churches. But the Lord also said that everyone with an ear should hear what the Spirit is saying 
to all the churches. But because Revelation 2 and 3 are not only direct words to local churches, we have this second aspect related to the prophetic dimension. So we understand the Lord speaking to the churches to point to future historical stages or developments of the church. So the speaking to Ephesus prophetically addresses the church immediately after the time of the apostles. The letter to Smyrna addresses the suffering of the church in persecution in the Roman Empire. Stage after stage is revealed. So we like to just be transparent and genuine and clear. We do adhere to Revelation 2 and 3 as both specific words to actual churches that existed in Asia in the first century and also to prophetic statements given by the Lord himself that we now read to a large extent looking backwards and can see, yes, this was the stage of Pergamos and Thyatira and Sardis and so on. And I just add this as a kind of little footnote. Matthew 13 provides somewhat of a parallel to the prophetic history disclosed in Revelation 2 and 3. And the parables, in many ways, correspond to the seven churches. So our Lord Jesus clearly foresaw the degradation of the church and the need for the recovery of the church so that the church would be built up and prepared as the bride for his coming back. Ron, today we come to the church in Smyrna. Let's look at these verses in Revelation 2, beginning at verse 8. And to the messenger of the church in Smyrna, write, These things says the first and the last, who became dead and lived again. I know your tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And the slander from those who call themselves Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear the things that you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison, that you may be tried, and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall by no means be hurt of the second death. There is a sweetness there, Ron, and I think we're going to see today that the word Smyrna itself has a very sweet significance. We're going to hear that it's the Greek word for the sweet spice, myrrh. Here's Witness Lee. The Lord is so sovereign in selecting churches to uh, fulfill his purpose. Every meaning according to the uh, Greek of each place just fit in the spiritual significance. Smyrna means what? Smyrna is the Greek word for the English equivalent mare, a sweet, fragrant spice. 
in typology, in the biblical figure, mere signifies the sweet suffering of Christ. Here you have a church at Smyrna. This no doubt indicates the suffering church in the sweetness, in the fragrance of Christ. This suffering church is in the tribulation of Jesus. And this suffering church is in the fellowship of his suffering. How he suffered, this church was also suffering as he was. He was suffering all the time, and this church followed him and became a continuation of his suffering. Even the apostle Paul said, you know, he was completing the suffering of Christ. The redemption, no one can continue, but Christ suffering. The persecution Christ suffered has to be continued by all his followers, not only individually, but also collectively. Here you do have a collective continuation of the suffering of Jesus. And this is the church at Smyrna. So, this church no doubt, was the real testimony of Jesus. Because she was the continuation of Jesus in his suffering. Ron, no doubt uh, this is a clear reference to the suffering church. Historically, we know there was a period of time early on in church history that the church went through a tremendous suffering and persecution. Witness Lee made an interesting point that I'd like to come back to. And that was that no one could ever continue Christ's sufferings for our redemption. That was uniquely his portion. So what is this suffering that we, as the Apostle Paul referred to in Colossians, can and do participate in to, quote, complete the suffering of Christ? I think this is a mystery to many believers. First, I would like to confirm what you just mentioned in response to Brother Lee speaking. Christ and Christ alone was qualified to suffer for our redemption. It is a very serious error for anyone to think that he or she can and should and needs to suffer something in order to be redeemed. No. But there are at least three kinds of sufferings that are related to a particular matter. When the Lord was on the cross and he had died, his side was pierced with a spear, and out from his side flowed blood and water, blood for redemption, water signifying life. So the Lord's death had a life-releasing aspect. So we may be one with Christ in the sufferings that release life and enable us to minister life to others. 
This was Paul's testimony in 2 Corinthians 4.12. Death operates in us, but life in you. Then another aspect is mentioned again by Paul in Colossians 1.24. He said, We make up what is lacking of the afflictions of Christ for his body, the church. So this is a suffering that enables life to be released for the church as the organic body of Christ to grow and to be built up. So Christ is suffering for this. He was suffering when Saul of Tarsus, now known as Paul, was persecuting him by persecuting the believers. So later, Paul himself would complete the sufferings that are still needed for the believers to grow in life, for the church to be built up. Then the third aspect is mentioned in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 5, and this is related to the kingdom. God's will is to bring his heavenly kingdom to a glorious manifestation on the earth. But the God of this age, the enemy, utilizes fallen human beings to withstand the establishing and the manifestation of God's kingdom. So those who seek the kingdom first, as the Lord mentions in Matthew 6.33, must be prepared to suffer for the sake of the righteousnesses, the righteousness of God, the will of God. And Peter addressed this in his first epistle. So to summarize, we absolutely have no part in Christ's suffering for redemption. But the sufferings of Christ that are related to the life-releasing aspect of his death, we can participate in being one with him in his crucifixion, in his sufferings to release life, to be one with him in his afflictions for the growth and building up of the body, and to live him and to be one with him to suffer for the kingdom, and to suffer for the sake of righteousness. All these aspects of suffering for the fulfillment of God's purpose are taking place even now as I speak this word. Ron, one of the things that we see that's common to all of the seven letters is that the Lord presents himself very specifically with a specific title at the beginning of each of the seven letters. In this letter, he identifies himself as the first and the last who became dead and lived again. We're going to see just how significant this is. Let's rejoin Witness Lee. The Lord told this suffering church that he was the first and the last. This means, regardless how much suffering he has passed through, the suffering didn't stop him. The suffering didn't terminate him. The suffering didn't damage him. He was the first, and eventually he was also the last. When the Lord told the Sovereign Church at Smyrna that he was the first and the last, he indicated that the church there has to be overcoming. The church there has to be victorious. The church there should not be stopped, frustrated, ended by any kind of suffering. 
because the Lord, who is their life and their head, was the first and last. Then he said, He was the one who became dead and lived again. Huh. Suffering or persecution, the most it can do is to kill us. That's all. When we got killed, we got graduated from suffering. When we got killed, we got graduated from persecution. Following the death of persecution is resurrection. So the Lord told the suffering church that you have to realize I am the one who was persecuted to death. But you have to realize death was not the end. Death was a gateway into resurrection. So don't be afraid of being uh, killed. Don't be threatened by the persecution to death. You have to be heavy. When you get your death, you got on the threshold of resurrection. I am the one who became dead and lived again. It's interesting that he points out at the very beginning of this epistle that he was the first and the last and the one who became dead and yet lives again. There's a real key here, Ron, as to how we can ever be able to endure persecution and suffering, isn't there? Yes, the Lord is the first and he's the last. Elsewhere, he says he's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Nothing can outlast him. Everything will cease, but he remains. We need to know the Lord in this way, to know him as the last. To know him in this way will give us a deep inward assurance that whatever we're going through, it will not outlast the Lord. Then we need to realize that the Lord, the one who said, He's the first and the last, is the one who died and was raised again. This is Christ in resurrection, as resurrection, imparting himself as resurrection life to the suffering believers. This Christ is with our spirit right now. And when we touch him with the realization Nothing can outlast him, and nothing can defeat him. This supplies us to endure what we could never endure and to be faithful unto the end, regardless of the situation. Not because we're so strong in ourselves, not because in any way we are heroes. There are no heroes in God's economy. There are only faithful believers who know and experience Christ as the first and the last, the one who died and who lived again, the resurrected Christ who is with us and in us day by day. Ron, at the end of the letter, of course, there's a promise to the ones who overcome and persevere and endure in Jesus through this kind of persecution. We want to look at the last verse. It touches something quite unique and very specific Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
He who overcomes shall by no means be hurt of the second death. We're going to look at this verse in this last section. So let's go back to Witness Lee. You know, Christian teachers have a problem here. They thought after man is resurrected, there will be no judgment, no more further settlement. But this is made very clear in the Bible. Even after the resurrection, and especially after the resurrection, there will be a thorough dealing. If you die today, you will still have something left that requires the Lord's dealing. Of course, the further dealing of the Lord doesn't mean you will be lost. You will suffer the perdition. It doesn't mean that. Whatever that dealing will be, it surely will not be something passive. But you have to hear the word of the Lord. If you overcome the persecution, you will possibly get the crown of life and negatively not be hurt by the second death. Don't hold on the traditional kind of theology telling you that after you be resurrected, everything will be okay. It all depends upon how we live and work today. If we live and work in an overcoming way, you see, that means what? That means we have overcome death. We will leave nothing that requires some further dealing from the Lord. So we be warned that we have to overcome all kinds of tribulation, affliction, suffering, persecution, that we may get the crown of life and we may not be hurt by the second death. This means we will have nothing left for the Lord's further dealing in the future. This causes traditional theology a big problem. The Lord promises in verse 11 that if we're faithful to overcome, we will receive the crown of life and be spared any effect of the second death. We know that our salvation in Christ ultimately and eternally keeps us from death. So what's the implication of this word here concerning the second death? Our salvation is eternal. We have been regenerated. We have been born of God. We cannot be unborn. But God in his wisdom has arranged that the coming kingdom, the millennial kingdom, will be a reward. The eternal life in the New Jerusalem is for all believers. But the thousand-year kingdom is not. It is for those who are overcomers, who are victors, who are faithful. And various places in the New Testament indicate that for believers who in their life on earth fall very, very short of God's will, they don't do the Father's will, they love the world, they indulge in all kinds of fleshly things, they're saved. But their living does not deserve any kind of reward. And also they have not grown to maturity. They have not been transformed in their soul. So there will be, during the thousand years, some kind of discipline. 
We will never call this purgatory. It's not a suffering in order to be saved. It is rather a suffering for those who have been saved because they were not worthy to receive the crown. They were not faithful to the Lord. They did not do the will of the Father. So there is something called the second death. And it's sufficient simply to say it indicates some kind of discipline that believers may experience while other believers are in the wedding feast and have entered into the joy of the Lord. We realize that this is, overall, a minority view. It is not an item of the faith. Some may accept this interpretation, others may not. That we make very clear, this has nothing to do with our eternal salvation. So we suggest, especially for those who might be quite hasty in reacting and wanting to present counter-arguments, we suggest reread the New Testament in light of what is called the kingdom truth. There is something called outer darkness. There is something indicated as being a form of discipline. We will all be for eternity in the new Jerusalem. We will be part of it, the wife of the redeeming God. But only the victorious ones will receive the crown of life. So we have to be faithful to the Lord and faithful to our listeners. This is our understanding. We present it to you. We encourage you, bring this to the Lord and read and reread, study and restudy the Word of God in the Lord's presence with much prayer. Ron, this matter is covered in detail in Matthew, where we see the parables of the kingdom and how they lead us to really no other conclusion. We've gotten a lot of responses from our listeners uh, over the years when we've touched this matter, and some even strongly disagree because they have verses that seem to say the opposite. We certainly are those who believe and cherish and treasure verses like John 3.16, but we also have to be faithful and equally believe verses such as Revelation 2.11. There are a number of publications that are very helpful on these matters, Ron. Of course, the Life Study of Revelation printed messages and the Life Study of Matthew. Another book that um, I think we'd both recommend is Watchman Nee's great book called The Orthodoxy of the Church, which exclusively deals with the seven epistles in Revelation and their historic significance. If you're interested in this topic, I hope you'll contact us. We can give you information about these publications by Living Stream Ministry. If you call us toll-free, we'll give you the information. It's 1-888-LIFE-STUDY. That's 888-543-3788. Or send email to us, radio at lsm.org. And please join us for our next program as we take a look at church number three in Revelation, the church in Pergamos. For Ron Kangas, I'm Chris Wilde. Thanks very much for listening today. You've been listening to Life Study of the Bible with Witness Lee. Brought to you by Living Stream Ministry, publisher and distributor of the works of Watchman Nee and Witness Lee. If you'd like to contact us, just email radio at lsm.org or call us toll free at 1-888-LIFE-STUDY. That's one 
543-3788. Thanks for listening.